So we're in 1 Peter. I'm excited about this because this is actually a topic I have not ever preached on before. I may have mentioned it offhand. I have this bad habit of saying, but that's a whole nother sermon, and then I don't talk anymore about it. Uh, Alan calls me out on that all the time. So I'll make a side comment and say, but that's a whole nother sermon, and then I never get around to preaching that sermon. And so this morning, that's what this is. This is a topic I haven't approached before, and Peter brings it up for a very good reason, because this is where they are living. This is the environment they're living in, and he's addressing something incredibly relevant to them, but also incredibly relevant to us. So to give you a quick background, if you're just joining us in 1 Peter, uh, the, the people of God are no longer primarily located in Jerusalem. That the, the gospel, meaning everything Vic Spencer just said a few minutes ago about your debt is paid by Jesus' death and resurrection, that truth, that good news has escaped the confines of uh, the, the cultural conf confines and the physical walls of Israel, and then it has begun to spread across the Gentile world into Rome and Greece, and, and persecution at the same time begins to increase, forcing the Christians that were in Jerusalem out. So those two things are happening at the same time, which is forcing the people into being missionaries, whether they, whether they wanted to be or not. We are all, well, maybe not all of us, most of us are reluctant missionaries. <clears throat> and God is forcing them out, right, through the spread of the gospel. And he is sending out this letter to them. They are <clears throat> no longer surrounded by people that believe what they do. They are finding themselves surrounded by people that believe the opposite and think they're crazy. They think they're devil worshipers. So they were accused of being cannibals because of communion. They were accused of all kinds of crazy things, all right? And so that's where they're living. <clears throat> and he's writing to them in that context, which gives kind of special meaning to these verses I'm going to read here in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter is beginning a new section of his letter with this summary statement, and he's going to unpack what we just read for quite a while into his letter, okay, over the next several weeks of this sermon series. And so first he acknowledges the situation to whom he writes. Okay, They are aliens and strangers, sojourners, pilgrims in a strange land. And the first thing we need to see is that that's us too. Like you may have been born here, but you're still an alien. And if you weren't born here, you're also an alien on this planet. Okay, You are not a citizen of this kingdom. You are a citizen of another kingdom. You are an undocumented refugee, if I could use that politically charged term. That is what you are, whether you recognize it or not. But we need to not forget that these people are not metaphorically aliens and strangers. They are literally aliens and strangers where they're living. It's hard for us, I think, those of us who are 
have been here their whole lives, many of us in this town their whole life, or at least in the, this part of the country their whole life. I was raised in North Carolina. And so for us, we are not often confronted with this reality. However, in recent years, I, for one, have felt the strain of this reality more and more. I have felt the pressure of feeling a little out of sync with the world around me more and more. So the first thing we need to do right out of the gate with this section of Scripture is to take the opportunity to remind yourself this morning that we are all foreigners. We are not from here. We are from another kingdom, an eternal kingdom that does not operate by the same rules, the same perspectives, the same values or allegiances as the world around us. You do not belong. If you feel ever feel like you fit in, you're in a dangerous place. And this search to fit in in the world around you is anti-God, anti-Christ, and anti-gospel. You will never fit in. You were not meant to. The truth is, the kingdom of God is invading this world through you. You are an invasion force of the kingdom of God, to use another politically charged term. You are invading this world with the kingdom, not the other way around. So Peter's going to instruct us to conduct ourselves accordingly, okay? So that when the world speaks ill of us, which they will, they at least won't be able to deny your good deeds towards each other. They won't be able to deny the fact that you are acting like Jesus. And they may say crazy things about us, but they won't be able to deny that. And that's what Peter, that's Peter's goal. So here's how he unpacks it. Let's look at verses 13 to 17. <clears throat> he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those people and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That should be on a t-shirt. That's a great summary verse of what, how you should act. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So he tells us to submit to our governmental authorities because they are instituted by God to use force to punish evil and exalt what is good. That is what our government is supposed to do. That's God's instructions to our government. And he tells us that we are free to be submitted to God by submitting to the governing magistrates. You are free to enslave yourself to God, to use Paul's language. So it's a certain kind of freedom, isn't it? You get to enslave yourself to God. That's how Paul put it. Peter knows that these people are being mistreated. He knows who he's talking to. Peter's probably writing this from Rome. So he himself is in a strange place. He has seen the model of Jesus' suffering under his own persecution at the cross. And Peter is just asking them to follow the example of Jesus. So he says, honor the emperor 
and also everyone else, right? Love the church, that's the brotherhood, and fear God. So Peter lays down a principle that when we submit to authority, that authority will be a blessing to us and we will not have to fear them. Now, if you're like me and you're watching the news at all, you know that's not always true. So what are, what are the limitations on what Peter is saying? Because he's giving us a principle that ought to be true and often is true that when you act right and the authority over you will treat you right. Supposed to be true that in your job, if you do a good job, your boss will appreciate you for it. And that's, by and large, the advice I would give to anyone. Do a good job, and most of the time, someone above you will recognize it and appreciate you for it. But I won't ask for a show of hands of how many people have experienced the opposite of that. So when I tell my kids, I say, yeah, do a good job, and you'll be successful but then there's going to be that guy who doesn't appreciate you for what you do, doesn't, and is, has authority to bless you and promote you, but does not, and instead promotes someone who is backstabbing and evil. And we need to know how to act in that case, and in that case, we act like Jesus acted. Peter himself, not so happily, would experience this himself as Nero ramped up persecution. He was himself was executed under persecution. All of this culminating in the bloody horrors in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. And one of the worst, bloodiest, most violent catastrophes Israel's ever seen. Peter didn't know that was going to happen, but I think he at least sensed it. And he's writing this letter into that world. I think it helps us to go to Romans, to Paul, where he talks about this same exact idea, um, fleshes it out a little bit more in Romans 13. So let's look at that. <clears throat> Paul says, and you'll recognize the theme here, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for as there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you pay also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Notice he said, doesn't say respect to those who deserve it. He says respect to those to whom it is owed, meaning just by virtue of the fact that God put them in authority, you must respect them. So Paul 
makes it clear that the earthly authority is put there by God as God's servant. Okay? This becomes one of the limitations of this statement. The government magistrate is there to carry out the will of God. That's why they are there. Whether that magistrate is a Christian or not, this is their purpose, as God says. Your job is to serve me, to exalt what is good, and to punish what is evil. The honor and submission we give is predicated on their obedience to the will of God. That is their job. So our principle, when we talk about civil disobedience, is the right, is civil disobedience is right for the Christian when the civil authority either, one, forbids us to do what God commands, or two, commands us to do what God forbids. You want to see an example of this? I'm not going to go into it because I don't have time, but in the book of Acts is a fantastic example of how this works in life. The apostles, Peter included, Peter who wrote this, included in that group, they are commanded by the authorities to stop preaching Jesus. They are brought into a council, basically before a group of guys who could decide their fate, religious leaders, local authorities, and they said, you're preaching this Jesus guy who died we, we thought we dealt with that guy, and you need to stop talking about him and stop doing these, these pesky miracles. And what do they say? We have to obey God before you. We obey God before man, okay? So they acted out this principle, is that we are not only, not only is it okay to disobey authority, it is righteous to disobey authority, when it either forbids us to do what God commands us to do or commands us to do what God forbids us to do. You can see that in Acts 4, um, specifically verse 19, also in chapter 5, 29, you see that story. We all really need to be clear about this. We do not obey authority or the laws that contradict what God says. No question. We are obligated to honor authority only insofar as that authority is the servant of Christ. So, if the U.S. government orders us to hire someone, for example, this is a question I got this week. After that Supreme Court decision, if the government orders us to hire someone that does not agree to our doctrine, we will not obey that order. That's not even a decision I have to make, Right? We don't have to have an elders meeting about that. That's already sorted. If the U.S. government orders us not to preach on certain topics, we will not obey that order. Our allegiance is to Christ above all. It's a settled issue, okay? There's another interesting difference. Because one of the things we have to do when we apply Scripture, right, is you do this naturally, is you have to measure the difference between the context in which the letter in this case was written and your current context and bridge the gap, right? You have to know the difference. And one of the differences is we don't have an emperor in the United States. That's a huge difference, okay? We don't have an emperor. We have a whole different system. We don't have a king in this country even though our elected officials often act like they're kings and eat 
and feed themselves like kings and treat themselves like kings. That is not what we have, okay? So that is a huge difference between the context of 1 Peter and our own. So we have to make some adjustments in our application. What we have here are elected officials that we choose, which means we are culpable to some degree in who leads us. We also have the right to free speech, to speak openly against the government legally. The civil authority has given us authority to rebuke it, to elect it, or remove it. Okay? So the authority, part of submitting to our authority, is that our authority has given us the obligation to remove it if it's not serving Christ. So, for example, a peaceful protest is not a violation of Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2, in my opinion. It's not. Riots, looting, and violence is a violation of those scriptures. Voicing disagreement with our president or governor or mayor or any other elected official is not a violation of those scriptures. It is actually a righteous use of the freedom God has given us by the authority we respect. But mocking, insulting, is sinful. This also means that we have a responsibility before God to vote for leaders that will act according to God's law, whether they're Christians or not. So these scriptures are the foundation of our involvement in politics. Okay, that's why it's a big deal. It all seems so simple on the, on the face of it. So we are obligated because of the laws of the land, we are obligated to vote according to God's law. We need to hold our elected officials accountable for whether or not they are serving Christ or not, whether they're Christians or not. We have a responsibility to call out injustice in our communities and to expect our civil magistrates to punish evil and exalt what is good. And when they don't do that, we let them know and then we fire them. That is not a violation of those scriptures. The more I read this and think it through, I realize that living in a free society is a blessing, but it's also a tremendous responsibility. If you don't like who's elected, you get to change it. But it's also a reflection of the soul of our country. If you don't like, you need to realize that. It's not just if you don't like Trump or you don't like our governor, well, that's, you get to not like him, right? But you need to also recognize that what you don't like about them is a reflection of what, of the true soul of our country. We put them in there. And that's sort of disturbing, right? It turns the finger back at you a little bit. And it forces us to ask the question, what kingdom do I belong to? So all of this serves as a theological basis for civil obedience, civil disobedience, and our political involvement. We submit to all authority unless that authority forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids. We elect those that will most closely serve Christ by wielding the sword and make no mistake, that is what they are doing. 
by wielding the sword honorably against evil and in promotion of good. When that authority does not punish evil and exalt what is good, we exercise our right to rebuke it, and then we get them out of there, right? This is all stuff that the people Peter was writing to didn't have the ability to do. Imagine that for a minute. I mean, get some perspective. Get a little bit of global perspective. Many places around the world don't even have the option of sitting around with your cup of coffee in the comfort of your living room with your phone in your hand, scrolling Facebook, debating the merits of political involvement and protests and all of this stuff. Because in many places around the world, that is simply a non, it's a pointless thought process because they don't have that right whatsoever. They are living underneath a tyrant. The fact that I could even say this stuff out loud outside is amazing. We are still a blessed people despite what we see. So, we live in a time in America where understanding what the Bible says about our relationship with our government is super, super important. For decades, evangelicals have enjoyed the luxury of mixed allegiances between, allegiances between God and country. We have been able to be confused about who's really in charge of our values and our decisions and what we do and don't do. We've been a, had the luxury of being confused because there was so much overlap between what our government and our culture was telling us and what we believed. We felt no chafing at that idolatry, but now we do. And we are chafing at that idolatry and some of us are confused. I remember when, just recently, when the, at least at first it was in North Carolina, but now it's a federal thing, where they said, we can't lawfully tell churches they can't gather because of COVID-19. And suddenly, pastors are confused about what to do. Like, do, should we meet or not? And I was going, I was at no point was I not meeting just because the governor told me I couldn't. I was taking his advice. But if, I dis, if we as a community disagreed with that advice, we would have met. And the reason we're still not meeting in there is because I agree with his advice, not because I'm some mindless person who's just doing whatever the government says. It's just I happen to agree with them, right? This is what I mean by we have to be clear about this stuff. We can no longer mindlessly simply vote for whoever the candidate is that's a part of our party. Those days are gone. I mean, they're just gone. They all check the box at the top and just all this. And it's becoming really hard, isn't it? It's becoming really hard to figure out who best represents the cause of Christ and their positions in politics, because there's so much daggone mixture. But I still maintain that this is the goal. 
is to vote that way. That is the principle we try to apply. It's uphold what is good, exalt what is good, punish what is evil. What God says is good and what God says is evil. Maybe I should put that caveat and not assume that everybody understands what good and evil is. <laughs> it's what God says is good and evil. So the question Peter by the Spirit directs at your heart and mind this morning is simply this. Who is your true king? And to what kingdom do you truly belong? I heard somebody, a child answer God. You're absolutely right. Yes. It's absolutely right. Who is your king and to what kingdom do you truly belong? Mixed allegiances will no longer work. All right, why don't we pray? I'm going to pray for you. I'm out of time. I'm also done. I'm not stopping early, but I want to pray because I think these things are complicated, but we need to get the principles clear. Amen. And I think if there's any mixed allegiance in your heart between God and country, you need to sort it out right now because it's not going to work anymore. And so I want to pray for us as a church, but I also want to pray for us as a nation. There's a tremendous amount of confusion right now about this stuff. So let's, I want to pray for you, and then will you pray with me for the church in the United States? Is that good? So let's pray. God, I just pray right now for just our church here. Those of us who are sitting here in this field and those of us who are joining us online, and God, would you convict us if we have mixed allegiances, if we are working to fit in instead of working to obey you? God, convict us right now of specific areas where maybe we have adopted the value system of the world around us instead of living according to your values and precepts. God, I pray for wisdom here in, in a presidential election year. God, it's, all this stuff is about to get stirred up again. If we can even start thinking about something new again other than Racism and the coronavirus, God, it's such a complicated time. So God, I pray that you would give all of us wisdom. God, wisdom to, to see what you see, to vote the way you want to vote. God, to see, um, to, to, God, that we would have leaders that exalt what is good and punish what is evil. God, we ask you to grant us that blessing as a nation. And God, I pray for the church in the United States that we would no longer have mixed allegiances. That there'll be no more confusion about who our true king is and what to which kingdom we belong. God, I pray that you would unite your church in this city around the cross. God, I pray your blessing over the church in this city, in Kernersville and in the triad. God, that you would bless the church with clarity of vision and purpose right now. I pray this in the name of your awesome son, Jesus. Amen.